All right, so why don't we begin? Um, so the theme for the Milban, Ralph Miliband program lecture for this year's Generations. Uh, so Robin Archer, who's the head of the program, unfortunately can't be here today, um, sent me an email a few months ago saying, um, the theme of the lecture for this year is Generations, and I'm trying to put together a panel or just a good lecture on intergenerational justice and democracy, ideally with reference to Brexit and perhaps also climate change. I've been, um, and he said, um, you know, he wanted my advice, Robin's a sociologist, for contributors who have both a philosophical grasp of the issues and the capacity to relate them to the topics of the moment. And so your name just sort of immediately popped up to the head of the list, um, Axel Gossery, who's the extraordinary professor and holder of the Hoover Chair, in charge of the Hoover Chair in Economic and Social Ethics at the Université Catholique de Louvain. And he's the holder of the uh, chair in charge of the um, Hoover group that Philippe von, Parat, Philippe von Parais held for several years, and he, he just retired, I think, a couple years ago. And so Axel is now taking over in this role. Um, Axel is, um, I think, without any dispute, the world's foremost philosophical expert on the topic of intergenerational justice. Uh, it's been the main focus of his research. Um, one application in a number of lecture, a number of papers has been on climate change. He's also addressed the question of intergenerational sovereignty, the question of how, if at all, do the laws of the dead bind the living. And so I suppose the longer it takes to implement Brexit, the more pressing this particular question will become in this context as senior citizens who voted for Brexit um, pass from the scene and they're replaced by young people coming of the age of majority who tend very much to be supporters of leave. So the, um, combining these two topics, I'm sorry, supporters will remain. <laughs> combining the two topics uh, um, of his research, uh, the title of Axel's talk is Intergenerational Justice and Generational Sovereignty in Light of the Brexit Vote and of Climate Change. I'm very pleased to introduce Axel. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, this is the first time I actually used PowerPoint. Wow. Uh, great. Um, and it's the first time I read a paper. I never did it before. So many first times. Um, good evening. It's a great honor to get a chance to have crossed the channel from Brussels, my little hometown. Uh, to come and share some ideas with you in the prestigious context, context of these Ralph Milliband lectures. It's o it always means a lot to me to be back to London, for it's here that I met my then future wife when a, more than 20 years ago. And it's also at the LSE that I attended some lectures as a, as a law student also 20 years ago. Um, it's also moving to be here at the LSE because this is a place where Brian Barry spent a lot of time and he's uh, no doubt one of the main uh, generation's uh, expert. So now the timing of this lecture is very special indeed and uh, there will be some unavoidable degree of futility in my talk, I believe, uh, given the magnitude of the challenge we are facing, especially this week, next week, but we, that we've been facing over the last weeks with Brexit. So the Brexit drama is unfolding in front of our eyes, 
And we are all wondering about what will happen, whether it could and should have been different. You know all this better than I do. So what you invited me to speak about is not Brexit as a whole, it's a specific dimension of it, namely its generational dimension from the perspective of normative political philosophy. And the reason for this invitation was phrased more specifically as follows. The Brexit vote reveals sharp differences in generational preferences, which raise different questions about intergenerational justice and democracy. This includes asking to what extent can present generations commit people in the future, and this is an aspect on which I will talk, and also think about what the consequences are for debates like those about a second referendum and climate change. So this was my mandate, and while the generational dimension is far from the only one, that matters in Brexit, it is one of them, and is the one that I want to focus on here. If we are concerned about the extent to which one generation, for example, through Brexit, can bind next, the next ones, be it through moving away from the EU, or if you take climate change, staying away from the path necessary for climate preservation, we are possibly concerned about two things, not just one. We are asking about the conditions under which it is acceptable for a generation to bind the next one. And we are also asking about the degree to which it is possible for a generation to bind the next one. Explaining this possibly includes asking whether it is more difficult for one generation to bind another one than it is for a nation to bind a neighboring nation. And explaining this possibly also includes asking whether it is harder for a generation not to bind another generation than for, an, for a nation not to bind a neighboring nation. So we need to address questions about the nature and extent of power of a generation over another that include both feasibility and legitimacy issues. I guess that what is also driving the, con the concern for Brexit is one of fairness, and the same holds for climate change. Legitimacy concerns are often driven by concerns for output unfairness that don't necessarily reduce to the unfairness of the decision-making processes. Hence, I guess that the question is also the extent to which a generational perspective is instructive and significant in analyzing Brexit and climate inaction from the perspective of fairness. And if I have time, I will say a few words about that. So I begin with, I will mostly focus on legit legitimacy. So here is the, the mandate that was given to me, and this is a quote from a university student that reflects the generational nature of the issue. Okay, so, so to introduce the legitimacy issue, I formulated the Brexit and the climate uh, concerns more or less along the same lines to see the parallel. So I read, leaving the EU is illegitimate because given its differential impact on different generations, the decision process leading to it doesn't give sufficient voice or weight to the most affected generations, overlapping or non-overlapping generations. And the same can be said for climate inaction. So remaining 
climatically off track is illegitimate because given its differential impact on different generations, the non-decision process rendering such a problematic remain possible doesn't give sufficient voice weight to the most affected overlapping and non-overlapping generations. Okay? So I think that the problem is, is quite similar in both cases. And it is framed as a problem of legitimacy in this case, so I'm not focusing on fairness at this stage. So beginning with Brexit, it's important to stress first that not all legitimacy concerns need to be of a generational nature. For instance, those denying that a referendum, including a second one, in general is the right instrument to make this kind of complex decisions, definitely question the legitimacy of the procedure without necessarily involving a generational dimension. Similarly, the distribution of power between the government and the House of Commons on Brexit matters also clearly raises interesting legitimacy issues without necessarily involving a major generational dimension. So I think that these are serious legitimacy concerns and there are many other ones. And I don't think that the generational dimension needs to be central for all of them. At the same time, it is clear from the quote that I, mentioned, I gave before, from this quote, that legitimacy and generations are central to the concern of many people uh, about Brexit. So the quote suggests that the generational framing is not uncommon. It focuses on the undesirability of the output, but also suggests a concern for the legitimacy of the process. When the student says uh, they voted on something that will not really affect them. And it's on the latter aspect that I wish to focus here. So there are three questions I think we need to address, and these are the, these three questions. And I'm going to try to answer the three of them. So the first question is, do figures about differential voting behavior across age groups today, those from the referendum and those from, from uh, later data, uh, suggest anything about whether the decision-making procedure should have, been, should have bet, better taken into account the generational decision, the dimension. The second question is, would an age-based institutional design, and I will give more details about that, have been defensible, and would it have made a difference, for example, in 2016, at the moment of the referendum, or today? Third question, if we understand Brexit as an attempt at regaining national sovereignty, which I think is reasonable to interpret it that way, uh, has this been achieved in breach of the generational sovereignty of future British people? Okay, so here the idea is that we could try and frame the issue in the language of sovereignty and look at both national sovereignty and generational sovereignty. So I'll, I will move through each of these three questions in turn. So I'll start with the first one. So here we are interested in what the facts are about voting percentages. And more importantly, because I'm sure you know the facts, about how to interpret them. So I start with a few elements about the facts. So if we take the YouGov poll from June 27, 2016, it indicates that those under 25 were more than twice as likely to vote remain than leave. And among those above 65, the picture is almost the exact opposite. As 64% of over 65 voted to leave, 
while only 36% voted to remain. Among the other groups in between, it's more divided. But the picture at that time is that there is a, there is a strong difference between young people and older people. In a more recent YouGov The Times survey from March 7, to the question whether Britain was right or wrong to vote to leave the European Union, the right response, I mean the right response, <laughs> the right response, got only 20% of those aged 18-24, and nearly three times more within the group of those above 65. So here again, you have a big difference, and what we are interested in it's hard to interpret this. So there is a study that is quite interesting, and one of the co-authors being an LSE professor, uh, Thwaites. So it's a study by Icon Green, Mary, and Thwaites, entitled Will Brexit Age Well? Study from last year, that tries to look at how to interpret this kind of data. Basically, we have three kind of pure uh, scenarios if we interpret these data. The first scenario is that what is mainly at stake are cohort effects. So we are going to try to dis distinguish between cohort effects, age effects, and period effects. So consider cohort effects first. If poll data exclusively reflected cohort effects, it means that currently young people will have to live with a decision to which they already object today and to which they are likely to keep objecting in the future. In contrast, those born 65 years ago or more tend to agree with Brexit today and will not have to live long under its consequences in the future. This would potentially be the, the most worrying scenario. So if the data result mostly from cohort effects, this would be the most worrying scenario in, term, in normative terms although it is unclear at this stage what exactly renders, it, renders this worrying. We get a sense that the underlying worry could be that for Brexit-type decisions, namely decisions with a long-term impact, it is desirable not to deviate too much from the majority view of today and of tomorrow if predictable. Okay, that's the rough sense in which we think it would be desirable to go in the di that direction if possible. Hence our concern for what young British citizens would be likely to think 30 years ahead. Now there are two other possible interpretations, right? and then there is the mix of the three. The two other possible interpretations are the following one. Um, if today's age-related differences between Brexiters and Remainers were exclusively to result from a life cycle effect, age-related rather than cohort-related, then people growing more EU skeptics uh, so the idea being that people grow more EU skeptics as they age. Brexit would actually end up matching the future views of currently young Remain voters because they would become Brexiters. And if, as a third pure interpretation, these data merely re reflected volatile period effects, hence no consistent life cycle effect or no cohort effect, it would be hard to predict whether Brexit would still match the wishes of the majority of those alive in 30 years, not to mention the degree to which such preferences may be endogenous to the political system under which people will evolve. Right? So there are three possible pure interpretations. There's a mix of these three. And of course, I think only the first one is really worrying from the perspective of legitimacy. 
So what does this uh, 2018 study suggest? It's, it suggests three things, basically. First, the poor data are likely to be the result of a mix of life cycle and cohort effects. And I quote the authors, they say, they find that recent cohorts tend to be more pro-European than their predecessors, but that voters also become more Eurosceptic as they age. So the two going in the opposite direction. Second, what is the net effect of the mix of effects is the age effect that dominates, not the cohort effect. And third, and more importantly, the authors stressed that the fact that these effects are small, so the cohort effect and the age effect are small, compared to the volatility and uncertain surrounding time effects. It follows that demographic trends are unlikely to be the decisive determinants of future changes in European sentiment. Okay. So this was a study not technically about Brexit itself, but about European sentiment. But it suggests that actually period effects dominate. So as a conclusion of this, we might say these, these data on, on Brexit and on European sentiment don't show clearly that there's a major gener generation, uh, generational legitimacy concern, since it's not mostly a cohort effect that is at play. Okay, let's imagine that it were a cohort effect. Let's consider what we could possibly do about it. So um, here we are going to look at uh, possible possibilities of institutional design that may respond to a worry that we think is not necessarily justified. So we look at the first set of institutional design options. Options can be presented as follows. We leave the idea of separate generational jurisdictions aside for a second, so I'm going to come back to this idea. And we assume here that we are considering a redesign of the political system that would be more sensitive to the generational dimension. Okay? And we suppose that Brexit, but the data don't seem to confirm it, shows that politics is not sufficiently sensitive to the generational dimension. One way of presenting this consists in distinguishing explicitly, distinguishing between explicitly generational sensitive or age-based design from indirectly generational sensitive design. An example of the latter consists in asking whether the generational dimension, and in particular our ability for more long-term decision-making, is better served by a more deliberative setting, or, so that's one option, for example, or another option, by a bicameral regime involving one randomly selected chamber. So you would have the House of Commons and you would have a second chamber that is randomly selected. And the idea is that these kind of design options would be more conducive to uh, policies that are more long-termist or more concerned with impartiality in general right? or with the quality of arguments and so on. So these are examples of ways of being more generation sensitive in an indirect way, without any reference, without any design based on age or anything. In contrast, what one can have age-based design strategies of various types. And note here that when we refer to a strategy as age-based, it means that it will use an age criterion. But it does not need to mean that the age criterion necessarily translates concern for age groups as opposed to birth cohorts. For normative purposes, birth cohorts tend to be more important than age groups. 
So we have only one instrument to capture, capture the two concerns. That's why we keep using H, but in fact, we may, with H, try to capture concerns for cohorts or concerns for age groups. But we only have one instrument. Now, in terms of concrete proposals, we can think of age quotas in electoral lists, age quotas in assemblies, age-sensitive bicameralism, with one of the chambers having a, an age-balanced composition and the other one not being constrained that way. Or we can have a young chamber and an older chamber. I don't think that's such a good idea. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's an option too. And measures can also be taken directly at the level of the electorate. For instance, one can relax the duty to vote for a certain age from a certain age onwards in countries in which voting is compulsory. And we can also propose age-based differential voting weight. So the weight of the vote of an older person would be lower than the, the weight of the vote of a younger person. So I would like to look more closely about, at, at this, this option, so different weight based on age. Of course, we have Brexit in mind, and we think, could this possibly help us making Brexit type of decisions more legitimate? Right? So what are possible arguments in favor of that? Uh, differentiated weight for different votes based on age. So here are three arguments among possible arguments. So the first argument draws on a parallel between uh, residents and the, the, the voting rights of non-residents and the voting rights based on age. So consider the idea that citizens who don't reside in a country, for example, UK overseas voters, should have less weighty votes than residents. Okay? And it's the case in some countries. It is at least conceivable to differentiate voting weights on the grounds of age for the same kind of reasons. Of course, we need to find out whether we find age relevant either because it says something about the residence time already spent in the country or because it says something about our future residence time in the country, which was the worry of that student earlier when she says they won't have to live with the consequences. Stressing one or the other is likely to point in opposite directions. When we rely, we consider the first, uh, first. So when we rely on residents to ascribe voting weight, we can have a backward-looking justification, thinking that unless you have resided for a long, uh, long time, you don't have the sufficient knowledge to, to handle British politics, for example, because it's complex, right? or Belgian, complex, Belgian politics because it's also complex. Um, and if we follow such an epistemic path, the analogy between age and residence does not really fall apart, except that what, what just happens is that in this case, older people should get heavier votes, heavier weights for their votes than young people. Such a rationale is in line with the exclusion of kids and teenagers from the electorate. It's the same kind of justification. They don't know enough about politics and so on. I'm not saying I'm endorsing this, but this is the kind of rationale you, you, you get. This contrasts with a forward-looking approach, interested in how much the voter is still likely to reside in the country in the future. And of course, age also correlates with that through additional life expectancy. In this case, age would be used as a proxy of shorter additional life expectancy, hence 
uh, of a shorter future residence time in the country. This would translate the idea that a properly defined demos, demos is one in which those who vote should also be subject to the decisions they mandate their representatives to make, which, be, which, which would be less the case if voters were to soon leave us through death. So the concern is not epistemic anymore in this case, and it can actually be understood in two complementary ways. If we claim that overseas voters should have votes with a lesser weight, it is not because their, their knowledge about their home country is getting outdated. It is because the degree to which they are vulnerable to heavy-handed decisions by future representatives is more limited than for the resident electorate. But it is also, and that's the other idea, it's also because the fact that they are less vulnerable to these future decisions generates weaker incentives for them to avoid voting for representatives that could impose heavy-handed decisions on residents. So being less affected by decisions reduces the need to contribute to a, such a decision, and it also reduces the chance of taking a careful decision if one has to take it. This is why we feel reassured that plane pilots are in the plane with us, as this renders them especially careful not to crash the plane. This holds for representatives, and it also holds for the electorate. And what holds for non-resident voters also holds for the elderly, if we accept to see advancing age as a proxy for less additional years shared with us. That's the first idea. I'm, I'm maybe going to skip the, the third one. I'm, I'm going to present you a second one just to give you a flavor. So here what I, I'm doing, I'm, I'm looking at ways in which we could redesign our electoral systems or democracies in ways that are more generation sensitive. And we look at the kind of justification we could, we could provide for it. So what about age and group size, which is a second possible justification? We may think that it can make sense to give more weight to individuals from small constituencies than to individuals from larger ones, as is the case with EU parliamentary elections. You know that a Belgian has much more weight than a German in EU parliamentary elections. It takes many more Germans to elect a German MEP than it takes Belgians to elect a Belgian MEP. The idea is to guarantee a sufficient representation of a diversity of views. In the same spirit, it is not inconceivable to think about giving extra weight to the vote of young electors in a society in which the age pyramid is such that the, the average age is 40. Given that those below 18 don't vote, and that some of the young who have already 18 have a low turnout rate, the 40 plus might systematically dominate decisions. And this kind of concern is typically present, present when we look at the political economy of pension reform. Right? And in a non-generational context, it is also typically the type of concern we have in context of language-based nationalism, in which the size of the different language groups differs significantly. Uh, for example, if you take Belgium, you have, you have three linguistic groups with one being much larger than the, than the two others. So 
We often set up counter-majoritarian devices to ensure a proper representation of the different groups affected and to make sure that their voices are properly heard. I also suspect that if, for some biological reasons, our societies always had three times more men than women, those who opposed manhood suffrage might consider advocating more than the mere inclusion of women in the demos. In such a world, they might also call for setting up devices intended at preventing the risk that women's voice would systematically not be heard because there would be three times more men than, than women. Most such devices de facto amount to giving more weight per head to the smaller group members. And this could justify fine-tuning voting weight according to age two. There are more arguments for fine-tuning voting age according to age, uh, voting weight according to age. I'm just going to limit myself to these two because then I'm interested in, in what it's supposed to mean for the case that interests us, Brexit. <clears throat> so these illustrate pro tanto arguments for assigning differential weights to votes on the basis of age. I don't think that these arguments are far-fetched. And also, there are further arguments out there. I don't think that adjusting the weight of elderly vote without disenfranchising them would be indefensible. Um, however, it seems to me that we do not necessarily need to go down that avenue. So the idea is that I don't think we should have done it in the case of Brexit or in the case of the, the UK democratic system. Um, so my resistance does not have to do with the fact that doing so would be incompatible with some form of equality in the deep sense. Because I think that these two reasons, and also the third one uh, that I didn't present, they each invoke equality in a meaningful manner. All of them invoke some sense of equality. My reluctance to fine-tuning the voting weight based on age probably comes from two sources. The first one is, is a Pandora box, is a classical argument. So there are other significant social divides that would probably also justify adjusting voting weights. And the multiplication of such demands would be a challenge to any electoral system. Uh, I'm, it doesn't mean that such a Pandora box fear should be final, but we should at least explore alternatives. And I mentioned that there are alternative design options that are not age-based. I mentioned some before. The second reason why I think it's not a good idea is that if we go back to Brexit, the interpretation of the Brexit electoral data is symptomatic of the fact that we may be exaggerating the degree to which views actually differ significantly across age, uh, age groups and cohorts. It is clear that adjusting the weight of Brexit votes on an age basis could have made a difference. I think it could have made a difference if it had been the case in 2016. But it is doubtful that such a difference would have translated more than mere period effects if we follow the interpretation of the data. Okay. So it could have made a difference, but this difference wouldn't mean that we managed to capture differences in cohorts, in cohortal views, right? which is, I think, what is relevant. Okay, so I think that this kind of uh, this institutional design should not be considered here as a solution. 
And what I do in the next part of the paper, I, I look at another way of dealing with the problem that is based on sovereignty, the idea of sovereignty. And that was the third question, if you, we go back. This is the third question we had to address. So, so we, we looked at this, we, we looked at this too, and now we are looking at the third question. So the third, third question is whether we try to achieve national sovereignty at the cost of violating generational sovereignty, which would be another way of, uh, so I would say question two is, is more an attempt at responding to this quote from that student, which question three fits better with this, with the, this, this part of the question that asks, to what extent can present generation commit people in the future? I think this fits better with the uh, concern for sovereignty. So I try to address this. So the question is whether Brexit plausibly read as an attempt at regaining national sovereignty actually did so in breach of the requirement of generational sovereignty, given the distribution of votes between age groups at the time of the referendum. This seems to be one of the possible worries underlying the question that was asked to me. And as we said, as we said, this question may be pointing both at the degree to which it is possible and at the degree to which it is uh, acceptable to bind future people. To the extent that normative political philosophy may have something to say about the desirable level and distribution of sovereignty, it may also have to consider the same issues for generational sovereignty. So invoking the idea of generational sovereignty is not a standard way of framing things. However, it is through this prism that we can read the concern of Jefferson, for example, in 1789. This is a concern that he shared with other people like Condorcet, for example, and they were concerned about constitutional rigidity. And this quote is symptomatic of a close to sovereignty idea. Right? So he says, we, we seem not to have perceived that by the law of nature, one generation is to another as one independent nation uh, to another. Right. So he, he draws the parallel between generations and nations, and so he also invites us to consider generational sovereignty together with national sovereignty. So let me start with the case of national sovereignty. Let's imagine that we live in a closed economy that is self-sufficient, in which exports and imports of goods and services are close to non-existent, a society in which there is no significant degree of immigration and emigration and no foreign investment. Doesn't look like the UK, but let's imagine. There is a sense in which we could, in such a society, preserve a significant degree of sovereignty over our territory. But this is less the case in a world of free movement of goods, services, and people, with major sectors of our economies being detained by foreign investors, with relatively credible threats by the rich to flee if taxation were to increase, etc. This is why the ability of Brexit to significantly increase British people's national sovereignty over their territory has been questioned. It is at best limited, and we cannot exclude the possibility that if certain conditions were met, Brexit would actually end up reducing the effective control that British people have over their lives. So we have a question about our ability to increase national sovereignty or to preserve national sovereignty. 
and the conditions under which it's possible. And then we have also a concern about the desirability of doing so, right? And I can perfectly imagine conditions under which it would be desirable for uh, the UK to, to leave, or at least reasonable reasons for doing so, that don't need to be nationalist of any, of any kind. For example, if you consider that there's no room within the EU to, to uh, defend certain types of policies that, that we value very much. So we could imagine some good reasons to leave as well. Okay? So I'm not going to go into that. Be too hot a topic. Um, and now I move to, to uh, generations. So having briefly dealt with the possibility and desirability of demands for more distributive national sovereignty, let us move from the world of national sovereignty to the less familiar world of generational sovereignty. How much room do we actually have to distribute sovereignty between generations in a different way than the one in which we currently do it? And, it's, and if we have this room, in which direction should we go? Should we use the room we have? So consider first the generational sovereignty of overlapping generations. Okay. We start with that. Guaranteeing some degree of sovereignty to each of the overlapping cohorts would require the possibility of allowing for different rules applying distinctly to each of the birth cohort having adopted it. Of course, we currently have already different rules applying to different age groups in our societies in various ways. We have age limits of various types. And we can question them too. In the previous section, we envisaged the possibility of different cohorts adopting together a single rule that would apply to all, be it with differentiated voting weights on grounds of age. So it's not because you differentiate voting weights that you take separate decisions. You take one decision together. Here, we are not envisaging such an aggregation of votes of junior and senior British people. We are envisaging what we are envisaging is the possibility of different birth cohorts adopting separate rules that would apply separately to themselves only, treating them as separate constituencies coexisting on a given territory. So to give you a flavor, we are talking about young people continuing to live together with older people on the same island, the latter living under British rule and the former remaining under EU rule. We live together, we share the same territory, but you are outside the EU and I remain in it. Students are allowed to continue doing Erasmus exchanges as before with the continent, while their professors are not allowed to do so anymore. <laughs> Students are being served food in the university restaurant that needs to comply with EU regulation, whereas professors should be served food that complies with the new UK food regulation. Students pay tuition fees that comply with EU regulation, whereas the salaries of their professors are now paid according to new UK regulations. Okay, so this gives you a flavor of what would happen. This is a magnified version of, of the problem encountered by deterritorialized forms of federalism, under which two linguistic groups coexist with different decisions and different parliaments and so on, on a single, on a single territory, as is the case in the Brussels region. So these systems actually exist. Here, the aggravating factors are that we would have to allow the various generations to decide on issues with a clear territorial 
dimension, right? Imagine traffic regulation, for example. More importantly, the interdependence between age groups and cohorts, for example, to fund pensions or to educate kids, is more unavoidable than the interactions between people from different linguistic groups. Of course, when we change from one regime to the next, we often exempt a given cohort from the application of a new rule. This is typically the case when we adopt new age limits for pension regimes. However, here, what we are talking about is something much broader. It's living under different rules that evolve in parallel right, on a given territory. So we see that taking seriously generational sovereignty for overlapping generation is a very difficult thing to do. And it's very difficult because as cohorts, we, are also, we also belong to different age groups, and we have very strong ties as age groups. We interact through education, through pensions, and so on, in many ways that are such that we need to have common, rooms, common rules. So this was for overlapping generations. What about the prospects of distributing generational sovereignty between non-overlapping generations, which seems to be the concern that was expressed earlier. So here we have physical non-coexistence, and physical non-coexistence has several implications. One implication has to do with the possibility of enforcing our views on other generations beyond our existence. Standard forms of enforcement presuppose physical coexistence. Our ability to enforce decisions beyond our existence is thus inexistent for such forms of enforcement. This potentially increases the sovereignty of future generations towards us, and of course it also increases our sovereignty, our sovereignty towards them. So our mutual vulnerability and respective sovereignty is equally affected in this respect. So you might say this is good news because it's easy to preserve generational sovereignty in the case of non-overlapping generations. However, it would be too quick to conclude that the sovereignty of non-overlapping generations towards one another is guaranteed. This would neglect the fact that there are ways in which we can impose things on the future and that they don't work in the opposite direction. And these things that we can impose on the future or deprive the future of are highly relevant from the perspective of a less formal concept of sovereignty. A formal notion of sovereignty would imply that we can increase our collective autonomy while disregarding the actual resources that we dispose of. But a more substantive notion of sovereignty would render us more sensitive to these resources depletion, to resource depletion cases. So whether future British citizens will have to live on a lush island or on a barren one is relevant from the perspective of sovereignty in that richer sense, not only from the perspective of fairness. Because what's the point of being able to decide alone if there is not much left to decide about? So not only is the ability of non-overlapping generations to impose things to one another asymmetric, yet another asymmetry holds regarding the possibility of cross-generational communication. We can express ourselves and pass the message onto the future. For example, uh, do this or do that, do that, we value this or we value that with, uh, for the UK, for example. But the reverse is not true. So future people don't have the ability to express their views to us at the appropriate time, not to mention the fact that deliberate, deliberating together is out of reach beyond the overlap. 
So I, I just take an analogy with international relations. Uh, imagine that we had to decide on how to distribute sovereignty on clouds, a shared water resource between Britain and Belgium. These clouds always cross Britain first, enabling islanders to unilaterally practice cloud seeding, a common practice in the UK. There would be no way in which Belgians could enforce any unilateral or even bilateral decision on British people, and there would be no way in which Belgians could even come to an agreement with British people because Belgian people would be mute, as future generations are mute today. And this is what we face if we are concerned about the legitimacy of our actions towards the future and about the idea of respecting the sovereignty of the future. So this is the magnitude of the problem. And what happens is that whatever we do, there are path dependencies, locks-ins, and rigidities that we will unavoidably impose on the future. So what would be my position here. I would say uh, that I'm under the impression that it's harder to limit the effects of our policies to the lifetime of our cohort than it is to limit them to our national territories. So I believe that it's harder to guarantee uh, the sovereignty of future generations than it is to guarantee the sovereignty of the neighboring nations. And the second idea is that I'm not sure whether it's always desirable to aim at policies that are less far-reaching in the future or more reversible. If we believe in the values embedded in the Constitution, we may have good reasons to rigid rigidify it. And we may also find it desirable for the sake of future people not to render, render buried nuclear waste too easily retrievable. So the idea is that... Uh, it's probably not so easy not to have a major impact on the future. And it's also not clear whether it's desirable not to have this impact. So what follows from all this in general and for Brexit implications? As to the general implication, distributing generational sovereignty between overlapping generations is unfeasible, as I have indicated. In contrast, there is a sense in which increasing the sovereignty of non-overlapping generations towards one another seems feasible, even though it is to be achieved unilaterally by the early generations. However, the way it can be done, typically through limiting the effects of our choices to our lifetimes, will not necessarily always benefit the future. Most of our wealth comes from the combination of our natural resources and the cultural heritage that was transferred to us, having less impact on the future seems to entail not only some forms of abstention, abstentions towards the natural environment, but also less cultural transmission. Hence, while overlapping generations could decide separately, they would have a hard time living with policies that are mutually incom incompatible. And while remote generations would have a, an easier time living under policies that are very different from one another, it is unclear whether their lives should be rendered as independent as those of two neighboring closed economies. What about Brexit? I would say, should we have managed the Brexit decision or in general uh, UK politics uh, differently to grant more generational sovereignty to the youngest and the oldest cohorts that overlap today? I think we've shown it's impossible, right? 
Should we have managed the Brexit decision procedure differently to grant more generational sovereignty to future generations? I don't think that future generations may have been more involved in the 2016 process. It's impossible. And I also don't think that remain would be less far-reaching than leave. Both of them will have far-reaching impacts on the future. Perhaps one aspect that could have been translated in the procedure is the degree to which the electorate was informed about the long-term effects of Brexit for British people and for continental Europe. And moreover, a rich notion of sovereignty also cares about wealth. And if we think that British people will become poorer as a result of Brexit, then we can say that this is a problem from the point of view of the effective sovereignty of future British people because they will have to exercise their generational sovereignty over a more limited range of options. At this point, we can see how close assessing the process legitimacy of Brexit gets to assessing the fairness of its results through the notion of, through a rich notion of generational sovereignty. So I would conclude on legitimacy. Are we on time? Five minutes? Sure, yeah, that's yeah. perfect. Yeah. Um, so Brexit has a clearly different impact on various generations. And on referendum day, it is clear that different age groups and birth cohorts involved voted differently. There's no question about that. It does not follow that procedural measures specifically targeting the intergenerational dimension of Brexit would have been helpful or required. And it also does not follow that the generational legitimacy of Brexit cannot be questioned, be it because any vote on Brexit would irremediably be illegitimate towards the remote future, or because other non-targeted measures could have further contributed to its intergenerational legitimacy between overlapping generations. So here I'm referring to possible general measures, like having a more deliberative decision on, on Brexit, being clear about the different options, and, and being clear about the long-term effects. And I'm also referring to the possible idea that any policy we adopt would, in the end, be illegitimate from an intergenerational perspective. This doesn't mean that we cannot move closer to something more legitimate. But if we, for example, think that there is no policy uh, that can be legitimate unless those affected have been consulted, we can conclude that towards the future, all our policies will be illegitimate to a, a large degree. Now, um, maybe I leave for, for the discussion some parallels with climate and, and fairness. So thanks very much. Right, thank you very much. So perhaps uh, just take a seat now for the... Uh, Question session. Could I, I, I just want to um, begin with a um, f sort of factual query about the age effect versus the cohort effect. Um, so, the you, you said that according to this paper that you cited, the yeah. um, age effect is greater than the cohort effect. That's what they claim. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In other words, the cohort effect is how, how Brexit versus Leave likely you are depending on when you were born, and then the age effect is how Brexit or leave supporting you are depending on how old you are. So their account of the cohort effect is that uh, pre-baby uh, boom 
generations were pretty pro-European, then baby boom generation becomes less pro-European, and then the next generation becomes more pro-European again. Okay, all right. So they claim that the mix currently, the mix of age effects and in the mix of age effects and cohort effects, the age effect dominates today, but that within a few years, the cohort effect will dominate. All right, okay. But both of them will be dominated by period effects, they think. Interesting, okay. Right, because just, just one point. I mean, if, if the, um, the, the sort of um, age distribution in society stays the same, so I, I guess by dominate, so it could be that there's a big difference between those who are 60 years old, those who are 20 years old, bigger than the difference between cohorts. But if the age distribution stays the same over time, that difference won't really matter. Um, you, you have people dying, then you have uh, people um, reaching the age of majority, and then it seems like the, the cohort effect would then make more of a difference. Although perhaps they were making a, they were talking about age effect versus cohort effect differently on, on how it actually would have um, affected a rerun of the vote. Is that what they were? So saying? I'm not sure. I think that they include in the com in the cohort effect the compos the age composition of each cohort too. Oh, okay, right. I'm not sure. Okay, not sure. Anyway, I, I should open up to. Um, Discussion? Okay. Yes, sir. So why don't you wait till the uh, microphone? All right, cheers. Um, hi. I just want to come back to that Jefferson quote you, you, you've put there. Um, you know, I thought back in the days when they created America, they, they reached a sort of conclusion that there would be big lines like the... Um, you know, the, the big lines at the Constitution, but then they, that could always be interpreted as that's how um, they would give voice to future generations. Is that, is that correct? And would that mean that, you know, the Brexit vote was actually too binding to be a 50-50 vote, but that should be more of a, you know, maybe like they do constitutional questions, like maybe 70, 64% or something more, like a two-third two uh, majority, something like that? So you're saying that, so their concern was that they didn't want to bind the future too much. Yeah. Right? No, you're suggesting that we should have adopted a qualified majority to decide on Brexit? Yeah. And what? And what's the connection with Jefferson? So Jefferson was like, the, the, if we vote right now, we'll always be binding future people. But I thought the way they, they went around this was that um, there would still be room for future people because we're just voting right now very big lines, but then we can always interpret it through the different houses. Is that correct? No. So, so, um, so, so Jefferson's proposal was that laws should lapse every 20 years um, just to take account 19, of... 19. Sorry, every, yeah, every 19 years just to take account of... At, by that point, a new generation will... Have um, so to speak, come into existence. Because uh, of the life expectancy at that time. You had calculated every 19 years, we need a new constitution. Okay, that's what he said. Yeah. Right. Okay, fair enough. But, but um, I guess the problem is if you, if, you, if, um, if you have a constitution that requires a two-thirds majority to amend, then okay, it makes it harder for the current generation to have an effect on the next generation, but it also makes it harder for the next generation to, to get out from under the shackles of exactly. what the current generation did. And so, so most people I t tend to think that a supermajority requirement 
if it applies to each generation, results in the previous generations actually having more power to buy in future okay, generations. Okay, yeah. Cool. Thank you. Um, thank you, uh, Professor uh, Grosseri, for your um, for the lecture. Um, I wanted to say, so you mentioned some of the arguments in favour of uh, the young voters having having more more of a voice. Uh, but what about if you consider it the other way around that, that there are some arguments as to why the the older generations should have more voice, um, such that, for example, they might be wiser because they've lived for longer and they've seen the uh, the effects of policies that, that they have voted for in the past was younger, voters haven't. What about those? Yeah, items? that's the first one I mentioned. So the first one I mentioned is the, the one in which you use age as, as a, you take age as a, thing, uh, as a proxy for the length of residence in the country. So there is, of course, there's uh, experience, there's knowledge and so on, and of course, wiseness to some degree. So you can, you can bring these together. And of course, that's, that's why we, as I said, it's in line with the exclusion of younger people if they have insufficient knowledge or experience or, or, or ability, political abilities and so on to understand the debate. So, so of course, that's, that's a very standard argument. But besides that one, I don't see any other. Uh, you were thinking about other so, arguments? So, uh, so you'd say keep it as it is then, uh, with every, every uh, citizen that's eligible to vote having the same voting power? Yeah, I was saying that there are there is a case for for there there are three or four arguments in favor of uh, giving more weight to younger people, right, or less weight to to older people <coughs> in voting. And of course, there is also that argument that goes in the opposite direction. But for example, the one I didn't mention, differential longevity, is also an argument that says uh, the the voting system is uh, longevity sensitive, and to that ex extent, it it uh, reinforces inequality, existing inequalities. Because not only is it, is it uh, good luck for you if you live longer, but it's also it tends to be associated with being wealthier. Like wealthier people live longer, so because the vote is uh, longevity sensitive, it tends to uh, reinforce the weight of people who are more wealthy. Uh, and so that's another reason why I didn't mention. That's another reason why you might think we need to we would like to reduce the weight of, of uh, richer people i mean we did so in the past we when we got rid of for example tax based voting in the in the case of the franchise that was one of the reasons and also when we went, when we went to control electoral spendings for elections that's also because we are concerned about the weight of richer people right so that would be another way of doing it thank you So here's a funny implication of um, taking generational sovereignty really seriously. So it seems to me that if we do, then we should also criticize the design of Article 50 and uh, the way things are looking right now. Because one thing we've certainly learned is that leaving the EU is actually incredibly hard. I mean, maybe um, much harder than even the designers of Article 50 anticipated, but nevertheless, it's the case. And so someone um, designed the system such that it's very, very difficult to leave it. Do you think that's a problem? Uh, well, if there, if there is a bias in one direction or the other, of course there is a constraint on, on generational sovereignty. 
It's, there's a form of rigidity like you have in the way in which you're, you're supposed to modify constitutions. So, but of course you have constitutions that non, don't require a, a qualified majority, and you could say, yes, uh, Article 50 is too rigid. That's, what, that's your claim, right? Uh huh. Yes. No, no, no. You can actually, you can also justify rigidity on grounds of protecting some future generations, including the generational sovereignty against intermediate generations. And yeah, there are many, many ways in which you can you can argue on that. It's just you take the intuition, you you you, you take seriously the notion of national sovereignty to some extent, right? I think most of us do. I mean, some of us to more to a larger extent than others. So the question is whether the idea of generational sovereignty makes sense too. If we completely constrain all the options that the future has, and we, 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 we kill all the species, we, we, we just uh, destroy our, all our cultural heritage, we constrain their generational sovereignty to a, to a, to a large extent. And, and many of us might find this questionable. It's just a language in which we, we try to express things and see if we get some intuitions that differ from the other languages that we tend to use, for example, fairness. Thank you for the very interesting. Um, I, I wanted to touch upon the uh, problem of representation or the lack of representation of non-overlapping generations in particular. Uh, there is a solution used by, if, if, I'm, uh, if I'm correct, three or four countries around the world, which is a future generations ombudsman. And I wanted to uh, know what your thoughts were about this solution. Okay. So, so one of the most interesting solution of that type, so these are solutions that require specialist institutions. And uh, one of them is the, the Finnish Committee for the Future. And that's a parliamentary committee. Uh, and it has turned out to be quite interesting because for some reason you have people who then became ministers, a lot of them, or influential uh, MPs. And, and there is a turnover. So, so a lot of them go through this committee and they, they are kind of contaminated by this, frame, this, this way of framing things. And so that has been quite an effective way at, at apparently changing policies. I mean, there is very little uh, social science study on that. If you look at the, the other experience, I mean, and also I, I would say the, one of the most interesting current experiment is the Wales, uh, uh, I don't remember her, her exact title, but that's also quite an interesting uh, model. Now, if you look at Hungary and Israel, which are the two oldest uh, models, I don't think they have been very effective at promoting uh, a way, uh, like uh, a wide-ranging way of framing issues. I mean, the Israeli, uh, uh, I don't remember the exact title that he had. It's not an ombudsman. It's a, uh, he was connected with the, the, the Knesset. And It, he, he was connected with the Knesset, and uh, um, he didn't last for so long. 
and the kind of issues that, that he, he was picking some issues, but not according to any uh, very clear mandate from, from the law, right? So it's, I, I don't think that was such a nice experiment. And the ombudsman for, for uh, future generations from Hungary, uh, they had a narrow mandate just for environmental issues. And uh, they managed to do some stuff, but they were quite vulnerable to, uh, to uh, Hungarian politics, and now they, they are even more. So I don't think we have, uh, you, you have trade-offs. I mean, you, you, you want, for reasons of acceptability of these kind of institutions, they cannot have st a too strong status because then parliaments don't want them. Uh, but if don't, they don't have a very independent status, then it's very hard for them to press the decisions. So we are stuck because we don't manage to, to have institutions of that, that type that really have uh, some strong weight. I would imagine that the Welsh experiment is currently the most interesting problem. There's a question in the back, and, and then we'll turn to the questions up front. Um, so I just have uh, two hypothetical scenario-based questions, I guess. So the first would be, um, what about reframing it according to an issue-based or context-based approach? So obviously the Brexit debate is a referendum, whereas you know, elections for parliament or MPs or the president will be every couple of years, depending on the democracy you're part of. So depending on the type of vote, would you offer a different a recommendation for generational waiting. And the second question, I suppose, would be um, in a situation where there is, it isn't an issue that can be put to vote or can be explicitly, easily dissected into a parliamentary debate even, such as climate change, how might you bake in at least a generational stake in, in kind of society more widely um, when it comes to fairness or equality, as you put it previously. Thank you. So your suggestion is that in some cases it's more acceptable to use differential weights for a... Uh, is your, your microphone? Oh, sorry. Where is it? Oh, that's down there. It's, it's oh, sorry. No yeah, that's right. So in the, in the case of... The gentleman who asked about Jefferson, uh -huh. you mentioned that um, you know the political cycle is self-corrective or generationally reflective in some way due to its cyclical That's nature, right. and with you know presidential elections that is the case. Whereas for a referendum, it's pretty binding. Um, in the case of Brexit, you can't really have another referendum unless you know. Well, we'll see in the next couple of like weeks, I guess. Like but um, referenda every 19 years, like uh, well, precisely. Did. I mean, yeah. I, we, we can't ascertain that right now, but that could happen, I suppose. But at the moment, and we're we're suggesting that that won't happen. So, depending on the type of vote, yes, is there an implication on generational sovereignty? I remember having debates with friends about whether um, Brexit would be worse than Trump, or maybe. Better than, I mean, assuming that both of them are bad, of course, maybe they're both good, but whether the one will be worse than the other. And then one argument was, well, Trump will be around only for at most eight years, whereas Brexit is probably going to last um, qu quite a long time. So that perhaps that's along the lines of the, the contrast that you're drawing. Thank you. Um, 
So your suggestion is that the more one shot the decision is, the more generation sensitive it should be, right? Yeah. I think it, in theory, it makes sense. But the the problem, the kind of problems we have is that also if you look at climate change, for example, you don't see major differences in in terms of uh, voting behavior or the degree to which people care about the environment and so on. So that it's it's not. I mean, a priori, a priori, you would expect young people to be more long-termists because they have to suffer more from future decisions than older people. But this is not actually what data seem to show. So if, this not, if, it's, if there are no significant differences in preferences about long-term issues, then the problem is that, yes, we could have these kind of uh, weighting of, of votes, but I'm not sure we need it, and I'm not sure it would make a difference. But in theory, yes, we could say it makes sense if it's a one-shot decision. We would want, want it to be more generation sensitive. So there are two hands in the front, and then one hand in the back. So, and then okay, and then another hand in the back. So, thanks. Um, do you think there might be indirect reciprocity between non-overlapping generations that could ground the legitimacy of some laws that bind future generations? Do you have a, uh, an example in mind? Um, I'm thinking of a proposal by Joseph Heath in regard to climate change. So I think the suggestion is that um, in the case of climate change, which could be catastrophic for future generations, we can assume there is a kind of um, indirect reciprocity between present generations and these future generations. Um, and that could be the basis for grounding the legitimacy of some laws that the present generations make, which could bind them. So the, the question is, what's the connection between indirect reciprocity and legitimacy? So I tend to look at, you can look at indirect reciprocity as, a, as a, an account of justice. It's a quite a special one, because the idea of indirect reciprocity values the fact that there are no net transfers between people. That's the intuition of justice that underlies it. And, and I think it's a problematic intuition of justice. But you can also use the idea of indirect reciprocity as a motivational device. And yes, uh, there's no intergenerational problem because people will be motivated by intergenerational uh, reciprocity motives. And I think that uh, intergenerational reciprocity w may work for ascending transfers, as in pensions, for example. So I, I pay the pensions of my parents because my kids will pay my pension and so on, right, in an open future context, but they don't really work for descending uh, transfers, and these are the most tricky ones. So I don't think that in terms of motivation, the, the, the idea of indirect reciprocity would work. You might still want it as a, as, a, as a notion of justice. Now, the connection with legitimacy is not so clear. Why didn't they work for descending transfers, sorry? So for descending transfers, you need to always expect something in return, right? So you would say, okay, I do that for my kids, and I'll be dead by then. So, so then what do I get in return, right? Okay. All right, thank you for the inspiring lecture. I was wondering uh, if you think that abolishing the voting age limit of 18 and having children uh, vote for themselves or 
maybe giving their parents a vote for these children would be a defensible measure to enhance um, fair and equal representation in intergenerational justice. So I, I would not tend to give vote for parents because I think that this assumes that parents care more about the future than non-parents, which doesn't need to be the case, I think. And sometimes it's the reverse. Um, but uh, um, I guess we can lower the age limit. I'm not sure it would have a major impact. If your average age is still 40, you can lower it, but I don't think that, I mean, if you look at turnout rates and so on, I don't think it will have a major impact, but I think if we, we believe that people who are 16, we, you, you could even have envisage uh, literacy exams and stuff like that. I'm not sure it's a good idea, but you, you could imagine this. Uh, but I don't think that would make a big difference. But okay, from 18 to 16, yeah, why not? In the case of stricter rules uh, for EU citizens, I think uh, there will be an increase in inclination, tendency to stay in the UK. So there will be a kind of regularized enforcement for settlements. So again, uh, in my expectation, there will be less returning to Europe Bank. Uh, so there, 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 therefore there will be a kind of reverse stream. So my question is a little bit uh, identity issue in that sense, about Britishness with a prefix, with Belgium, French, you know. Obviously there will be no cultural imperialism, but what kind of absorbing or integration as a new phenomenon would be expected? How would you speculate that? So you asked me to predict what's going to happen. Uh, no idea. I have no idea. Raise your hands and get the microphone. Did you want? Hi. So, um, thank you for the lecture. I. I think you've established that democratic legitimacy is not a good guide for policy because it will never uh, uh, represent the preferences of future people. So at least for decisions that have an effect on future people or binding for future people, uh, it's, it's not a good way to decide what's the right policy decisions. The right policy decision should be based on uh, what realizes justice. So given your theory of justice, then uh, you decide what's the right policy and uh, then you should implement it. But that doesn't mean we, shouldn't, we should give up on democracy because there are other reasons to value democracy. Diluting the power of people, making sure that there is no one faction that takes uh, power over others. So democracy can be justified not because it's uh, of its representative value, because it represents the preferences of 
their constituents, but because it dilutes power uh, and it, uh, it gives an, uh, an incentive for people to uh, justify their position in a public way with public arguments. Right? So you could still want democracy, and then sometimes there would be mistakes. Uh, groups of people would, would take decisions that are bad or unjust, but that's the cost we are willing to pay to make sure that we at least don't uh, get into a, uh, a dictatorship where a faction takes uh, over power, right? So that's a different justification for democracy. Uh, but then you could say, in some situations, the consequences on future people are so important that the mistakes uh, that a given group of people or a given generation can make uh, would be too important. So we should find a way to avoid these mistakes. So the solution you propose is we tweak the institutional democratic system to uh, avoid generational biases. But given all the problems that you've raised with this, maybe that's not the right option. Maybe we find other ways to uh, reduce the likelihood of mistakes in democratic decisions. So can you uh, maybe uh, give us an idea of what kind of other uh, policies we can implement to reduce the likelihood of these kinds of uh, democratic mistakes, like uh, not having enough policies for preventing climate change or uh, uh, quitting the EU? Yeah, so, so I think you're right in saying that uh, when I insisted on the fact that maybe all our policies are illegitimate uh, because we'll never hear the voices of the future. And so to that extent, it's right. Uh, uh, I didn't mention it, but uh, I had written it that it makes it more important to, be, to, to care about fairness towards the future. So this is a case in which uh, we may not reach any uh, satisfactory account of legitimacy, uh, meet the demands of legitimacy. And, and I agree that uh, we should mostly rely on, on the general strategies that we use for intergenerational democracy to improve the quality of decision. So I, I would say uh, try to insulate the political process as much as possible from large inequality, from the effect of uh, outside, outside inequalities. Uh, try to make it more deliberative, have a strong free press, for example, properly funded, uh, and have some degree of separation of power. Uh, so whether this will deliver the kind of outcome we would like for Brexit or for climate change, I'm not sure, but uh, it would increase the legitimacy of the, the decision-making process. Any final question? Right. So. Thank you very much for the presentation. So um, back on the climate side and uh, linked to a related question uh, about how future generations can possibly have a stake uh, in policy decisions, I was wondering um, in terms of discount rates and when we uh, you know, undertake some kind of cost-benefit analysis about some kind of intervention to do with climate, uh, do you think there's any kind of case to weigh uh, future benefits at uh, a higher or premium rate than we presently do, or do you think um, kind of, uh, and potentially uh, reduce sort of uh, present benefits and potentially give it a negative weight in order to give future generations uh, more of a say in the policy evidence that underpins many decisions? So yes, th that's connected with the previous question, is that I guess we should find out whether a theory of justice should allow for discount rate. 
And of course, the, the, the main issue in the case of discount rate is what do you discount for and what exactly do you discount? What are the reasons why you discount? So if you discount, for example, because, of, because you think that the existence of people in the future is maybe slightly uncertain, I mean, these may be kind of reasons that are acceptable. Other reasons may be less acceptable. So whether this will give a voice to the future, I don't think. It will just be more fair. The way we assess things will be more fair. But I don't think it will give any voice to the future. Yep. Um, any final uh, question? All right. So th 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 thank Thanks you very, very much. much. Right. Thank yeah. you.